This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I am a big uh, proponent of marriage. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental uh resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's, it's, it's essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal, right? So if, if a 19 to 24-year-old person gets pregnant Historically, we'd say you got to marry. You got to marry the man. Marry the man that you know makes it legit. Now we've got a legitimate thing going on here, and then all of a sudden we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole. And the problem is, it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic uh, with economic struggles. So. It's, it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. But again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or, you know, things happen that all of a sudden yet you're pregnant – one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one-on-one. What is the 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 educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What What is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's, these are all important parts of the decision. And there are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father? What are the, what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out so, you know, it used to make more sense, and I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in, in smaller town kind of Christian-supported cultures and environments because you had a tight-knit group maybe more around you. But in inner-city, difficult, financially-strained situations— it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, and if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a, in a marriage um, if if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up, a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage 
coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist, though. And um, to think that it's the answer, it, sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is, um, you know, there's it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here, that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that. Um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? We got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the the reality is, is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. But- <laughs> Some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction, but it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, uh, Let's do one more and then we'll take a break. Um, Differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship, just like, you know, uh, potential infections and issues in our environment are better for your for your immunization, for your uh, immunology, your ability for your immune system to be strengthened. You need a resistance, right? You need to have something fighting against you. The same is true in our marriages. Whenever somebody tells me we never fight, I don't think, oh, they're healthy. I immediately think, well, how? Is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Uh, Thank you. And another myth that we've got to blow up. We'll take a break, come back, continue this coaching corner, give you a few more myths about marriage that we need to uh, really focus and deal with. Stick with us, folks. Helping you uh, love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um, another little uh, myth for you as we're debunking some of the myths about uh, marriage. Um, we've kind of already talked about the fact that, uh, you know, in your marriage, kids 
can bring happiness, but they also can bring dissension and division. So it depends on what you're focusing on. That's one merit myth we got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex, less <laughs> sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex and they're actually having better sex as they would rate it than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But uh, 43% said that of the singles, um, women who were be- ages, between the ages of 25 and 29 reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex, uh, ha- having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's, you know, Pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's it's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big dis- d- uh, division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researcher said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. The strengths become the weaknesses. So uh, over evolution of the ma- of the body, we we needed certain traits to survive. And the body learned. And, you know, if you were able to survive long enough to procreate and have children, those genes could be handed down. And now look at the curveball we've got because we were able to run and sweat and, you know, rehydrate. Our body started craving salts and water and fluids. Now, all of a sudden, that has turned into, hey, let's go get some fries and a Diet Coke. Not good. Or fries and a Coke. And now all of a sudden your brain loves the sugar because it wants as much sugar on board as it can get. Your brain loves the salt. And now we have to deal with it. It used to save our lives and now we don't need to chase an animal and run and sweat and perspire for hours. So um, how do we handle it now? Do you know how many times I've had people say, well, I mean, I know I've got this physical problem. I mean, I know, I know I've been anxious and depressed my entire life. I know it. But I don't want to get medicine. I don't want it. But what you're battling isn't just a weakness. You're battling evolutionary genes that are in you that have made you be a really uh, maybe tense, anxious person so you wouldn't get you know, snuck up on by a wild animal or a predator. You have that worry. That's in you. That's not going away. And so as the good doctor told us, you can either regulate it away, you know, by having 
more regulation on what we can do, what we can't do, more regulation on our mental health industries. Or we could also just, I guess, use behavior change, which I have a lot of people want to get over anxiety, but they don't know how and they don't get therapy and they don't read books about it. Or eventually you're going to need to let science in. Somehow we need to break down a little bit, I think, of the belief that science is against us instead of science maybe there to be the valuable bridge to to bridge our our past and our future. I mean, and a lot of the people are God fearing people that you know they don't they don't think they need medicine and drugs to fix something. But God also gave you science, right? He also gave you you know insight. The ability to learn and to read and to think. He gave you choice and agency. So if we're going to, you know, invoke God into the argument about how we handle our evolution and our realities, then let's involve him in everything. There are scientists that are deeply prompted and moved by a God. So let's make choices and let's not do it at the expense of our health. Interesting stuff, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us, folks. More fun in just a few minutes. We are in a digital era. For information, we turn to Google. For communications, we turn to email. For friends, we turn to social media. Also, in this digital area era, we have internet trolls, and uh, you know, between Twitter feuds and Facebook rants, we seem we see that rudeness is on the rise. It seems to be the new normal. Is it possible that social media is actually make us making us? more rude toward one another. Are we becoming ruder? Well, who better to help us with that than somebody that's been researching the subject? Mariana Plata joins us. She's a licensed psychologist from Panama, currently finishing her master's degree in child and adolescent psychology. And she is also a play therapist in training for the from the Association for Play Therapy and mental health writer and a public speaker. Mariana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an important issue because I am sensing with in my own life, with my own clients and with my kids, we are, it seems like, getting kind of more short with each other. We're, we're daring to say things we might not normally say. Are we becoming ruder? Well, I absolutely agree with you. And, I, and the, the reason why I decided to write this article was precisely the digital era. And the interesting thing that I came across with when I, when I started researching for this article, speaking to Danny Wallace, who wrote the book, F You Very Much, The Surprising Truth About Why People Are So Rude, is that it's actually due to the lack of eye contact, which it's not surprising to hear anonymity and what is allowed, to, what we're allowed to do in social media gives us kind of a carte blanche to say what we want, tweet what we want, and self-proclaim ourselves as experts sometimes. And that leads to, you know, more internet trolls and more rudeness spreading throughout social media and throughout the digital realm. Interesting. So it's the eye contact. It's the fact that I'm not looking in your eyes when I say this and seeing your reaction and 
feeling a little intimidation from that. Um, it's more I, because I don't have that. I, I feel maybe more emboldened. Right. And I think it's, it's also due and connected to something that, that Danny writes about in his book is that it's also due to the fact that there's no one holding up that mirror and confronting our rudeness. Whereas if we're having personal interactions, let's say you're outside in a supermarket and someone cuts in line and, you know, the person, you get upset and you confront that person and you can say, excuse me, I'm in line here first. And other people are witnessing that. So they're kind of being held more accountable for their actions. But that accountability for some people, for those Internet trolls, seems to just be something that they brush off and that they don't take into consideration and that they don't necessarily need to change their behavior. So whereas someone who has been rude without intention gets that kind of looking glass effect back to them and say, hey, you're being rude, might feel that shame or that guilt of making someone else feel worse. Internet trolls, on the contrary, get a sense of reward from doing that. So that's the whole reason why we advocate for a psychologist. And And it's interesting to look at Internet trolls because they really are bullies, to look at it within that bully theory that if you don't, you know, bite that bait and you don't engage with them, you're not giving them what they want and they will look for that somewhere else. Mm. So that engaging in those Internet discussions and those Twitter rants and Facebook rants and Twitter feuds actually give those Internet trolls more power than they originally had. Okay. Talk to us. Explain, uh, for those that, that may not know, w- define what an Internet troll is and, and how what techniques they use to get their bully messages out there. Right. So an Internet troll is a person who is seeking for opportunities and spaces to spread rudeness and negativity and to make people feel bad. It's when you when you look at it this way, and I and I show it to some people who get, you know, sometimes I either get patients or friends or family members who tell me about a Facebook rant that they got into, and when I explain it to them that way, they react with, well, that's kind of sad that they, you know, they spent their entire day behind a computer or behind a screen or a tablet or a cell phone, lurking and looking for opportunities to take advantage of those most vulnerable. But that's literally what they do. And it comes from a place of an emotional insecurity that they have. And when people engage with them, it kind of sends off the message, oh, people are paying attention to me. People are paying attention to what I I say. Therefore, what I'm saying is important. Mm. Therefore, I am important. So... It really is a negative cycle that they engage in. And when you understand that they're engaging in this cycle from insecurity, you kind of look at it with a more objective kind of perspective. And it's not as subjective and as emotional as that person is trying to piss me off or make me feel bad or make me feel hurt or make me feel angry. But it talks more about them than it does about myself. Yeah. 
Is it because they're not they're also this isn't a debate. They're they're just trying to make you mad. Their job is I mean, their their response is not one of construction and constructivism and healthy uh, conversation. It is a negative bullying. Exactly. And there's actually a a paper that was published in the Journal of Personality and Individual Differences that does that same clarification, internet trolls versus people who engage in a healthy debate. And I think the main difference is that internet trolls go with a fixed mindset of what they are, of the topic they're engaging in. And they're not going to change that. Whereas people who engage in debate have a much more flexible stance and are open to learning or changing or tweaking their their perspective or their paradigm or their perception of the topic that's being um, in, that's in the table and the digital table, so to speak. Yeah. So you you found in in the research and in some of the things you've been looking at uh, that it's the lack of eye contact. Um, that that starts to maybe enable people that want to troll to kind of validate their own identity. They they then start to get feedback that hey this is working and it emboldens them. But so that then then it creates this kind of rudeness factor. But when one person's rude to another person, doesn't that doesn't that almost create like a contagion of rudeness? Absolutely, absolutely. Rudeness is contagious precisely because. In, in the research that's been found, rudeness acts like a neurotoxin in our system. So a neurotoxin is exactly what it, what it, what it self-explains. It's a toxic substance that affects our nervous system and affects our brain. And when it affects our brain, it affects our ability to think straight. It affects our memory. It affects our communication style. So it really is an epidemic. And the whole theory of holding back that looking glass, as I was mentioning earlier, prevents that cycle from carrying on. So if one person is rude, let's say I'm at a workplace and I have, I go in with a, with a pleasant perspective and I go in happy, uh, I've had a good day so far, and I receive a, a rude comment from a colleague or from my boss. If I don't confront that head-on, then I'm going to go and carry away that neurotoxin. I'm going to carry away that rudeness. Personally, I run away from confrontation. I get very, very nervous when someone is being rude to me, and I'm not sure how to confront it because I look at the word confrontation to to me has a negative connotation. In my head, until I started reading about this, it meant that I had to be equally aggressive. But in reality, that confrontation means explaining your point of view, explaining how that person made you feel, starting with an I statement. We're big fans of I statements because when we start with an you, when we start a conversation with you did this and you made me feel that way, the other person will be a lot more defensive. Whereas if you start with an I felt hurt when you did this or when you said this, it kind of disarms the other person. So starting with I statements where you explain how that other person made you feel and doing it in a respectful and assertive way. Because if we understand objectively that that person is coming from an aggressive 
point of view, if I add more aggression to that, then it will just become a never-ending storm of rudeness and of negativity. So you kind of want to be mindful of what's your purpose in this discussion and and holding that mirror onto onto people and just being okay with the fact that some people might want to look at their reflection and some people might not want to look at their reflection. But that confrontation comes from a place of not keeping, of trying to not keep that inside of you and not holding on that grudge or that rudeness so that it doesn't spread to your other, you know, communities and relationships. Yeah, and I guess not react to it, not let it take over my emotion and and use the I statement with the other to say, hey, you know, when you say it that way, I I feel this and this and this, or the power of this, I guess, is starting to get some of my thoughts out, um, but also see if we can't turn it more constructive. And then I guess in the end, if they react to it and they become more emboldened and more angry than than what we probably know of a troll that's just trying to create, you know, you know, right. frenzy. And it says, and, and at the end says more about them than it does about you. Yeah. And I, I know that in paper, this sounds very easy, but in the moment you get carried away because of course they, I love the theory that Dr. Um, Daniel Spiegel, who's a, who's an eminence in the world of uh, interpersonal neurobiology explains that it, it kind of, awakens our reptile brain, which is our most instinctive part of our, you know, being. And in that moment, it's going to awaken that brain, but it's also not letting that reptile brain or that reptilian brain take control over you, but you take control over it. So when we consciously say, okay, this person is being rude, when we stop for a minute, when we receive that rudeness and say, okay, this person is being rude, and it probably has something to do with something that happened to them, not something that I'm doing, then we can get into a healthy confrontation and then assertive communication to kind of end that cycle. Yeah. Again, we're speaking with Mariana Plata, who is a licensed psychologist from Panama and is currently finishing her master's degree in child and adolescent clinical psychology. And she's helping us understand uh, and wrote a wonderful article on is social media making us ruder. She's talking about the fact that a lot of times when you're engaging somebody that's being really rude or mean online, they, they've got their own issues. They're, they've got problems that they they're just emboldened if you fight back with them and it might be better instead to recognize who they are don't take the bait don't think it's about you and instead see them for what they are is it is it better do you think in the end mariana to just ignore it or to confront it do we i mean to some degree we want to push back so that others are, I guess, protected as well, but it also doesn't seem to help sometimes to push back. Right, and that's a that's a great question, and I think it depends a lot on who is it coming from. Because if we have, let's say, a close friend, or even in our own romantic relationships with our partners, if there has been a consistent 
um, pattern of rudeness, which isn't typical or isn't ordinary, I think it's valuable to confront that and kind of clarify because this is a relationship that you want to keep in your life. Yeah. So um, I, I think in, you have to make a decision of kind of, is it is this worth it? Is it worth the fight? And, and also learn how to choose your battles because it's exhausting to have to educate everyone and to have to, nor is it people's responsibility to hold that looking glass all the time. So I think it's kind of a pick and choose situation. Um, if, it's, if it's a relationship where, you know, you're going to have to continue seeing this person and you know that it isn't something ordinary and it isn't something normal, um, for this person to be reacting this way, then I think it's, it's healthy to have this conversation. But if it's, you know, uh, something that happens when you're driving, that someone cuts in line, or um, this type of scenarios, it, it really depends up to you if you want to um, point that out to people. Yeah. And well, I also yeah. think that there are certain situations, for example, if you're having a customer service, situation. For example, if you're going to a restaurant or you're going to the store or, you know, you are buying a product, I think it's also important to have these type of situations, this, these type of conversations, sorry, because these are the people that will continue to have relationships with other people and they might not be aware that what they're doing is, is being rude. And if they react defensively at the first sign of you trying to open those conversations, then I would say just let it go and understand that it has something to do with them and, again, not something to do with you. Yeah. No, I think that's such great advice. Mariana, thank you for your insight and your time and uh, and just your willingness to help us understand this this uh, rude or, uh, you know, less than ideal kind of world we're now living in. Uh, it really, I think, helps all of us. Again, Mariana Plata is a licensed psychologist from Panama, and uh, you can read more on psychology today um, about, uh, about this uh, problem we're having with social media and ruder people. We will continue the journey, folks, doing what we can to help create a healthier, happier life for all of us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, there's so many things that I want to talk to you about as a coach, but uh, one that has been weighing on my mind lately is uh, just how do we how do we take our marriages and make them happy? We live in this day and age where everyone's seeking happiness and supposedly We've never been healthier. We've never been uh, wealthier as a people. We've never had more opportunities, more information, more technology, as we talked about uh, in the last segment. And yet, do you feel happier as a couple? Um, Interestingly, there's a lot of research going on today, too, about happiness. It's this uh, positive psychology movement. And uh, in that research, what they've done is instead of focusing so much on what makes people unhappy, the latest movement in positive psychology is to identify what do happy people do that the rest of us aren't doing. And especially today, we could talk about what are the happy couples doing in life. 
that the rest of us could start practicing. So I wanted to run through a few of those ideas, hopefully give you a little spark, something that you could go home and, and do today in your relationship. One thing is they show gratitude to each other daily. Research shows that gratitude helps people feel more positive emotions, relish good experiences, improves their health, deals with adversity, and helps them build strong relationships. Just a simple word of gratitude every day. Um, Gratitude, by the way, is derived from the Latin word gratia, which means grace or graciousness or gratefulness. And so do you show gratitude daily? Do you actually say thank you for the little things that your partner does for you? Do you notice the things in the world and and show gratitude for what you've been given? Simply put, do you notice today things that matter? Uh, I was speaking to a, a client recently that is that feels really depressed and um the world is just kind of closing in on her and 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 beating her up quite honestly and what happens is then you start getting into these defensive mechanisms these defensive routines where you just have to protect yourself and one of the most common defensive mechanisms is what's called negative interpretation where you start seeing negativity everywhere in the world uh, the story I always tell is if you were if you were bit by a rattlesnake, let's say, or a snake, any snake in your garden, when you go to the garden every time, your body and mind are going to try to protect you. And as they try to protect you, they're going to think of everything as a snake. So when you see the hose of, uh, in the grass around the garden, you will assume it's a snake. When you see the... Um, when you see the rake, you know, in the grass, you will think of it as a snake and your body and mind start to think of everything as the negative thing. And that same thing happens in our lives. In our marriages, we start to become negative interpreters where, you know, why didn't your wife, you know, pour you a, a bowl or make you a bowl of ice cream? Why She made the kids a bowl of ice cream, but she didn't get you one. And then we immediately turn that into a negative interpretation. Well, because she doesn't even care. She, I mean, she got herself ice cream and the kids ice cream, and and then we go down the we go down what I call the low road. When in reality, it might just be that you're out of ice cream, <laughs> and she didn't get a bowl of ice cream either, and just the kids got the ice cream because those are the ones that were complaining about it. And so, negative interpreting. So the way we fix that is we just force ourselves in a way to start to see the good every day. So here's an assignment. By the way, it's the assignment we gave this uh, young woman who was falling into depression and struggling, and it was simply to I, I wanted her to identify three, you know, uh, three moments in the day, every day, where she felt kind of like a, a blessing from God, or she felt something really good and saw something really good that happened to her. A sign that life is good, a sign that she is loved, a sign that she's important and cared for. Find three a day and bring them back to me a week later, which she did. And uh, she was able to find three a day, and her mood had had changed dramatically. She's now starting to see the blessings. Then you can count those blessings, right? So the same is true in our marriages. Let's show more gratitude to each other. It's just one idea, but write a thank you note to your spouse. Thank them for helping you. Talk about it. Thank them for everything that they they do and, and give you every day. Keep a gratitude journal where you write down the three things every day that are your blessings. Start counting those blessings. Tell everybody every day about your blessings. Talk positively about people behind their back. Talk so positively about your spouse to someone else that, uh, you know, and, and then see if that positivity ever makes it back to your spouse. How cool is that when 
you know, you go to church or you're hanging out with somebody and all of a sudden they're saying, oh, yeah, your wife was telling me what a great job you did on whatever. It lifts everybody. Gratitude. Let's infuse our marriages and all of our relationships with a little more gratitude. Is it just positivity? Kind of, but it's also reality. A lot of the things going on in your world are very, very positive. And the more we emphasize them, the more uh, they may grow. Just my thought. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. Up next, we'll be talking about marriage arguments and their effects on children. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, you know what we like to do is revisit some of our past interviews, and one of our great contributors on the show is Dr. Brian Willoughby. He's an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University and uh, is an expert in you know uh, many marriage and relationship issues. A few months back, Dr. Willoughby joined us on the show and talked about marriage arguments and the effects on their children, and we wanted to revisit a bit of that interview. We began the interview talking about why arguing in front of our children is such a big deal. Yeah. more. If you don't fight in front of your kids, that's actually a problem, is which it really? is counterintuitive. Yeah. Because like you said, we think, we don't want our kids to think we fight. We, right. want, we want our kids to think we have this great, perfect marriage. And and actually, the kids that grow up never seeing their parents fight, they struggle a lot when they're young adults in their relationships. No, is it because they don't? it's a concept that they don't even think happens? Yeah, it's it's partially that. And it's mostly, though, because they don't know how to resolve conflict huh. because everyone has conflict, even yeah. if you don't see your parents fight. Even the healthiest have, couples. Yeah, even the healthiest have couples have conflict. In fact, couples that don't have conflict tend to have some underlying issues. They're not dealing <laughs> they're with. They're hiding something. Um, yeah. And so if I never saw my parents fight, that's my primary model for what a relationship is. Is supposed to be like. Hmm. I'm looking at my parents and, and saying, that's what I'm supposed to be doing as a husband, as a wife, as a spouse in general. If I never saw them resolve conflict, I get in my own committed relationships as a young adult, and I don't know how to resolve them anymore because I never saw that happen. You don't see that in movies. Yeah, no, you don't see no. that in TV. You don't see that in the media. And so all of a sudden, one, I don't have those skills to resolve conflict. And two, I have a lot of anxiety about it. Wait a minute. My parents never fought, or at least I think they never fought. now we're fighting. Now we're fighting. I must have a bad relationship. It's so – that is so counterintuitive. And and then you can almost see that parents might say, well, okay, so we're having tension. Let's just talk about that in the bedroom. Right. But Mm -hmm. so you really – we don't want to take it necessarily offline every time. No. You need to address it. Yeah, and then that doesn't mean sit your kids down and watch them have – Here goes mom and dad. Here we go. Go at each other. And obviously certain (laughs) topics you probably want to keep private. But – but that doesn't mean that they can't know that, hey, you know, there might have been a little tension yesterday, but yeah. we want you to know that me and mom, me and your mom sat down. We talked about it and we resolved it. That is so – that's – it's isn't that – that's so counterintuitive. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the thing, too, is that we think the kids can't pick up yeah. on oh, attention, kids don't. Kids but don't they know. do all they, the time. And so they think, well, they, they don't – as long as we keep it in the bedroom, we don't fight in front of them, yeah. that they're not going to notice. But they do notice. And one of the reasons they notice is because when you're mad at someone, even if you're not talking to them about it, you're still showing them through yeah. nonverbal language, That's right. through all these other things that you're doing, being passive aggressive, et cetera. And the kids are now learning that. Interesting. And I mean, kids know too. I had somebody just recently say, oh yeah, my mom's so passive aggressive. Mm-hmm. And that was a 16-year-old girl. Yeah. And I'm like, 
Where did you learn those terms? Oh yeah, it's 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 huge. In fact, I spent a lot of the last month listening to interviews of a uh, hundred young adults just talking about marriage and relationships. And one of the questions we asked them is, "What influenced you? How you think about relationships?" And and time and time again, the first thing that usually comes up is mom and dad. And what a lot of them are saying has been very fascinating. A lot of them grew up, their parents are still together, been married for 20, 30, 40 years. But they're still saying, you know what? I never want to get married because I saw how miserable my parents were. Uh, they didn't fight. Yeah. They, they weren't physical. There wasn't abuse. But I could tell my mom hated her life. That's what they think. Interesting. It, she was never happy or my dad was never happy. There was always this tension. Why would I ever want to be in that kind of relationship? Yeah. And, and they attribute it to marriage when it mm-hmm. could just be tension. It could right. just be life. It could be family. It yep. could be kids. It could be your parents are ailing. Yeah. Yeah. That's depressing. It is. It is. <laughs> I mean, it's such a – but you sit there and do this all day long. I mean, it's – is there – is that why a lot of these millennials aren't choosing to marriage? Do you, marry, do you think? It's a part of it. Yeah. The, the, it feeds into this mentality that marriage is a trap. Yeah. That it's something that's going to make my life worse, not better. And again, they, they rely a lot on, on parents. Is there, that's their primary example of what, at least for most of them, sure. what marriage is like. And they're looking at their parents, they're looking at their mom and dad and saying, is that what I want for my life? Is that yeah. the kind of relationship that I want? So if we have, if, if we have this tension, this, the relationship's not feeling positive as a couple, what, I mean, I'm sure there's more harmful ways to handle conflict mm-hmm. and there's probably less harmful ways, right. but it seems like... The typical is like you were saying this. Some of us just withdraw from it. We just walk away like blah, 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 right. pretend like that's not happening. And some want to engage it. What, what are what are kind of what are the harmful ways? What are the less harmful ways? What are the healthy ways we right. should have conflict when we're around our kids? Right. Well, we can start with the, the harmful ways because that's what most of us do. Yeah, that's what we're good at. A lot of the times, you know, obviously there, there's kind of the far extreme where you've got physical violence, emotional violence, yeah. verbal abuse. That's. Not a good thing for kids to see. That's it's not a good thing chart. for any kind of family dynamic. Um, but there's there's more subtle ways that conflict can be unhealthy too. You know, back to the passive aggressive thing, is if 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 we tend to put a cold shoulder towards our our partner and we tend to kind of shun and not interact with them, yeah. and kind of try to show them we're upset with them by by not communicating or not engaging with them. Um, that's that's a really strong negative thing that kids will pick up on. Oh, mm. mom's mad at dad. Yeah. Dad's mad at mom. And now look, we're not, you know, <laughs> we're not sitting down and talking anymore. Dad didn't come to dinner tonight or, yeah. or they're, they're not coming, you know, and that, that tends to spill over then to how we interact in our, our family time with our kids. Well, see, some people say that now oh, that's so much healthier than yelling. Not it's, necessarily. It's dysfunctional just on the other side right. of the spectrum. Right. Exactly. Um, and then there's things like, Interrupting is a huge thing. I uh. talk to my students all a lot about that is when one parent interrupts the other one because that, that, that signifies power in the relationship. When I interrupt you, I'm telling you through my communi- through the interrupting yeah. that I don't think what you say matters. Interesting. Um, and so kids will pick up on little subtle communication things like that, like interrupting, um, being defensive, um, kind of attacking and blaming our partner, all, the, all these kind of fighting things that we tend to do a lot, kids pick up on those It's intensity too. I mean, have, I've yeah. just seen with a lot of my clients that some just have learned if I bring intensity, mm-hmm. you can't handle it. Right. So I will just blow your 
right. uh, what are they called? Your circuits. I'll mm-hmm. bro- blow the circuit breakers yeah. in you, and this will be done. Right. I'm going to flood you with as uh-huh. much intensity as I can. And it can just be quiet, down. shaking, yeah. and, and again, steaming. Yeah, going back to what I said, that's when kids will start picking up. Okay, so dad, let's say dad does that. Yeah. Right? And mom kind of sits back, and dad usually gets his way. The kids are sitting back and saying, you know, especially if you look at a, a daughter, mm-hmm. you know, where mom's that kind of primary female role model. She's looking at mom saying, wow, wow, well, I don't want that to happen yeah. to me. I don't want to have to be in a relationship where I have to sit back and take that. And we start generalizing. I think, okay, even though that's just one marriage, mm-hmm. I start thinking, well, that's that's what marriage is like. Well, that's a, that was an interesting benefit. I grew up – my parents divorced when I was eight. Mm-hmm. So I grew up kind of always assuming I didn't have a good example, mm-hmm. even though – I th- I had good examples of parents, but I didn't have a good example of a relationship. So I was always looking. So I'd go to every friend's house and I'd watch their parents. Yeah. I was like the creepy Townsend kid that <laughs> – why is he always watching us? But I, I, w- I mean I gained a lot of information about different styles and I saw some parents touching a lot more and I could mm-hmm. tell some never did. But it's – that's the deal. We have usually one role model, if any, right. not 10. And mm-hmm. it's almost like we need 10. Yeah. Yeah, that's. Uh, my, I know my advisor in graduate school um, was really big on what he called marriage mentors, which is kind of yeah, the same idea. He, I love he, he that had this idea. whole idea of, you know, we need to get a lot of mentors in our life, a lot of good marriages, and and we actually have done a couple of research projects with really low income families um, that have no models yeah. at all. You know, yeah. their, their parents divorced or were never married to begin with in, in most cases, and let's find some stable marriage. People who have been married for 40, 50 years, yeah. and let's just put them together with these young couples, young parents, and and let them have that good example of you can make it. You can it's do possible. this. I think that's really cool. And it almost seems like a role that like a church would play, mm-hmm. kind of like a pastor and his wife could yeah. go be great mentors. Yeah. You got to almost have a relationship. You almost can't bring in a social worker right. and her husband. Here we go. Yeah. You, know yeah. I mean? you need to see real stories uh-huh. and, and real people that have struggled, that are open with their struggles uh-huh. too, back to the conflict um, thing. It's 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 powerful to see a healthy, stable couple that's open with, we struggled and we did fight and we did have conflict, but we got through it. That's really, the, the mentor idea is huge, isn't mm-hmm. it? And it's something too that maybe I had a couple the other day that's about to get married, and they're like, "What would you suggest?" And right now, I would suggest go find ten couples, right? Yeah, and just go start interviewing them. Yeah, yeah, it's something I do in my class. Do I you do them, that? Yeah, interview someone who's been married at least twenty or thirty years, and, and talk ha- talk to them about the struggles and how they went through it, and, that's such and a... try to open their eyes a little bit because again, particularly yeah. newlyweds. They get in this mindset of, <laughs> as soon as we fight, the marriage is over. It's over. No, it's I remember over. that. My first fight, I'm like, so divorce me. Yep. And my yep. wife, her head spun around. True yep. story. All the way around. And she talked like this. <laughs> and she said, don't ever say that word again. Right. Dunk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. And there's, then there's all this anxiety of, yeah. you know, how we can do it. Welcome back, friends. You know, um, love ain't easy. It ain't easy. But it is important that we find a way to to make it work and to to stick in in the relationship, to stay in until it is working. So we'll continue to give you the latest and greatest, the insights you need to love stronger and to lead healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits, Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle, because they keep getting in trouble. Um, check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Hmm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more, with the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got got to, anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them. Do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. Why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than 30 bacterial outbreaks, primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. This seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads it's to so the hospital. So good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got, you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices. Because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It also saves your life. It 
it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. So don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow, at home, you need a life, not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really... Did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No, It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's... It, it sounded right. It sounded like it? a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce, probably, some clam and linguine meal. Mmm. Sounds good. At an Italian restaurant... Lindsay has. Did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No. No. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know, just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, They were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined... It was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart, she just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then asked for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. <laughs> she may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something you can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You know, hey, I found some hair. It's just weird to put hair on a necklace. Make make it into a necklace. No, thanks. I'm going to be in the restroom for a minute. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Man, interesting subject, isn't it? When you talk about morality, ah, the reason we do what we do and why we do it. It's, and we don't consciously sit there and say, I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody. But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Or I had friends growing up in high school that if I, I would make a joke that they would laugh at, but then they'd be like, oh, Matt, shouldn't say that. And it, it was hilarious. That's why they were laughing. And they're like, man, what's wrong with me? Why? Why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit. Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is we, we, there's a thing called logical force. Okay, So logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, 
um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at a at an event, it would be logical that you don't talk to her, I guess, for a week. Ignore her. Ben does this all the time with the producers around him. It's very effective. Well, okay. And um, we're talking against it now, so you wouldn't want to probably argue that it's effective. I just need to put that in. Okay. Sorry. So, so you're justified, right? Because you're doing something that is right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your ten friends, if you had ten friends, Ben, nine out of ten of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too, and I would ignore Stacy. I'd ignore her. Because that was totally rude. The problem is, even if it's even if it's logical for you to be mad, even if it's uh, and you can see this in our political world, even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down, for you to destroy someone's career or you know credibility, it, just because it is logical and it it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system and your logic system don't all they don't go together because many times the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong, like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion. Um, I guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone you know and show how moral you are, or you could just shut your flapper and Go make a donation to preserving animals, right? But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi, uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa. These people didn't promote their actions. They just acted. I think you're being naive, Matt. (laughs) Is that – are you trying to show – are you trying to get me mad so I would – No, I'm trying to be logical. Your larynx. Um, Got to look after yourself in this world. See, again, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Um, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. All of a sudden, it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. Even the guy that was going to rush the stage, he was making a good point. Donald Trump's a bully, so all I wanted to do is just take the – I just wanted to take his – his speaker away, his pulpit away. I wanted to get rid of his stand. I didn't want to let him have his voice anymore. Logical. Logical. Not so logical when you think of the fact that there was tens of thousands of people there that would have stopped him. Uh, Twelve or so, he said, you know, Secret Service people that could have killed him or killed someone else trying to stop him. Not super logical. But he feels like he has moral authority to do that. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right, and that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand and even charge the stage. We have a right to do this. But there's also a responsibility. Do you know how bad that could have gone? Secret Service that have weapons— this guy could have either been killed or other people harmed or injured or Donald could have had a heart attack. Things could have happened. There's a responsibility that comes along with all of this. So just because you have a moral right or a right, logical right, it doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? 
Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what does what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, your God, you and your people around you, you and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses uh, with people following you, I'd keep your moral compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Hoping to help you see the good in the world, Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we love our kids to death. We want to be the best parents we can be. We keep hearing more and more stories and research and media about, you know, what what the perfect parents are all doing. And then we get this complex that we're not going to be perfect at it. And so uh, why not find out if we can't be perfect, let's just be exceptional. Let's be as good as we can possibly be. And uh, why not uh, study that? In his book, Simple Habits of Exceptional But Not Perfect Parents, uh, author Ken Dolan Del Vecchio um, talks about how we can be the best that we can be. And uh, he's here today to to help us um, uh, kind of sort through some of this this stuff. Ken Dolan Del Vecchio, are you there, my friend? Be with you, Matt. Good to be with you. Thanks for being here. I mean, it really is this idea. We, we're we're really we want to be the best parents we can be. Do, do you think we worry too much about the perfection side of it? I think the people who worry about being perfect are probably the most conscientious parents there are, and so they should give themselves a break. It's the people who don't worry about yeah. it who I'm more concerned about. That's right. The one where it's not even on the radar that that might be the one that we need to we need to try to reach out to. Right. Talk about um, your book, "Simple Habits of Exceptional, Not Perfect Parents." Um, I mean, exceptional, that's that really we we can we can be the exception. We can be the difference um, and, and be the best we can be. And that's probably good enough. Absolutely. All of our parents do the best they can. And we come out deeply flawed and deeply functional. And it's just important to recognize that's the human condition. And if we try to do the best we can, then that's that's all that one can ask. And and I wrote this book because a couple of my clients told me to. And in particular, I was working with a family who had an 18-year-old son who was in his first year of college. And he was having lots of struggles. He was having trouble fitting in, and he was having trouble doing his coursework. And he came home for Thanksgiving break, and he told his parents that he was, he was having this difficulty and that he thought he was going to take the next semester off, maybe do some work and see if he could pull himself together some and decide what he really wanted to do. And they got in touch with me because they took this as signs of catastrophic mental illness. Hmm. And through our conversations, 
I was very direct with them, and I told them basically that their child's life at that age, more so than even when he was younger, belongs to him. And it was very important for them to listen and to be supportive, to give ideas when they were asked to, but not to try to seize control. And it's in that very direct and simple kind of guidance they found that very useful, and, and they, among others, said, you need to write this down. And as I'm a person who, who writes a lot, that, that now became something that I had to get out of my head and onto the page, and there well, came the book. That's, that's, it's really powerful. In fact, you can hear in that there's, that there's that power struggle that we have as parents where we, we are used to having the control and the power over the child um, to influence, to guide, to direct – but really, it seems like your book addresses th- this this need to to manage the power differently. Well, if we look at power, and I believe that power is the is the platform on which all relationships are built. And if we look at the power in our relationships, we can essentially understand it in two ways. We can understand it as power over which is the right to control, the right to dominate, the right to tell what to do. And that's actually the expression of power that we see most in our world. But the alternative, and it's the exceptional choice, is power with. And power with is when we understand power as the awesome responsibility to generate shared health, success, all good things for the people who love and respect us or who we are responsible for in whatever organization we may be a leader in. And so that's the goal for parents, to understand that your job is, is not to direct, it's not to own, it's to, it's to facilitate carefully, thoughtfully, the development of this human being into the adult that they need to become. That adds, an, uh, it seems like, with that paradigm, a completely different responsibility and, and approach that we should be I mean it adds a seriousness to it where I mean this isn't an, this isn't a game that ends this isn't something that you just have a baby and they're gone when you're 18 your job is to like you said facilitate to empower and to to guide this child into their life through the rest of their lives yeah. our our job the way i see it is twofold it's to provide love in a way that is helping the child develop their full potential, their life skills, and it's to realize that we will forever be a guiding role model. And we want to be a role model for how to craft an adventurous, healthy, fulfilling life. Some of us, some of us become negative role models, mm-hmm. and we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. But I'll give you an example of, of power with, if I may. Yeah. So we... We know that kids don't know anything. Our kids don't know anything when they're little. That's why they need to stay with us for so many years. And when, for example, I've seen kids getting a haircut, little children, and they're screaming at the top of their lungs. And it's just insufferable. And, And I always think, you know, this is a place where we, we need to be thoughtful and caring right from the beginning. We need to understand that this can be scary. And we need to take our child when we get our hair cut and sit him on our lap and say, 
hey, look at what's happening. Mommy or daddy is getting their hair cut. It's really fun. Look in the mirror and see how it's done. And Aren't I beautiful? Mm. All that kind of stuff. And so they get the feeling that this is positive. This is okay. Same kind of thing in the dentist's office. I don't know about you, but oh. I used to take my son yeah. to the dentist. And in the next room, there'd be a kid screaming and yelling. And at some point, the parent might become a disciplinarian, or they might have ceded all power and just let <laughs> the let the tantrum go and run its course. And the, the exceptional course is to anticipate, it's to understand that kids don't misbehave, they behave. And we need to shape their behavior from the from the very beginning. And we need to be mindful of who they are, where they are developmentally, what their what their fears and their and their desires are. And, and, and be proactive, like really think ahead with those kinds of circumstances. Yeah. No, that's great. That's such great advice. I mean, I have six kids, Ken. So when we go wow. to the dentist, it's like <laughs> the Townsends have moved in. And, and really, the entire staff is paying attention to somebody in my family. Um, but I, I get that idea, too, that there's so much you can just model – Instead of just all of a sudden surprising them on it uh, with something, we could be modeling it along the way. You also bring up in your book the importance of teaching, you know, people that are children to to become kind of critical thinkers that can can actually formulate or or create or gain their own their own perspectives. Talk about that. How do you how do you generate a you know a, a critically thinking child? Well, let me first say, Matt, that this is so important in our day and age because I feel like there's so much that we need to evaluate for ourselves and and talk through with people who we love and respect. Uh, I'll tell you a very quick story. I was driving. I used to drive a long distance between my home in Massachusetts and my office in Newark, New Jersey. And often I would listen to talk radio shows like yours. And I was listening to a show political show. It was before the election. And the host was talking to a a man who had called in. And the guy who called in said, I listened to one outlet, one media outlet, and I don't agree with what they have to say. And I listened to another one, and I don't agree with what they have to say either. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. And the host said, well, I guess you're going to have to weigh what you hear and come to your own place, your own perspective. Can you do that? And there was a substantial pause, and the guy said no. Mm. And I have to tell you, I feel like there's a lot of that these days. I feel like people have put aside the capacity to think for ourselves. And it's a skill that gives us confidence. It makes us feel competent in the world. And it's really simple to help your kid do this. You just, right from the time that that they are small, you ask their opinion on things, you talk about your values and the ways that you think about things, and you, you talk with them about the shows that you see on TV. So as your child is growing up, they might, for example, notice the commercials that are everywhere, and they might notice the commercials for medication. And you can ask them, what do you think about that, that they're advertising medication? Mom and dad tend to think that you should get medication that a doctor prescribes. What do you think? And just asking those questions. And when you look at a a show like The Voice, let's say, you can ask questions like, what are the values 
that are being taught here. And you can talk about competition. You can talk about skill that is evaluated without looking at the person's appearance. You can talk about the relative value or the way that that collaboration balances raw competition. And when you do that, you're helping your kid understand that their thoughts are valuable. Their ideas are valuable. They don't have to they don't have to just listen to this news station or that one. I don't even think they're news stations anymore. I think they're more a little bit of inf- information and a lot of just bickering and loud arguing. Yeah. And I, I think that, that we need to empower our kids to, to value what they think. Mm. And, and I, think that that's, I think that that's simple but often overlooked because we don't do it our, enough ourselves. Many adults don't. Another thing we can do is read. We can read on the things that are current that are challenging. So, for example, the opioid crisis yeah. is, is on everybody's minds these days. And there's all these little articles about it, but there are also great books about it. So, so there's a book by a guy named Johan Harry. It's called Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. And it is, it's a compelling read. It talks about the history of, of where we've been as a society in terms of temperance, in terms of prohibition, the thinking that's changed over time across history. And when, you, when you're informed with that kind of depth, it can really help, it can help shape the way you understand the world. And again, if we read and we look at things in, in depth, our kids are watching. Mm. And then creating those questions. I, like, I love how many questions you were asking. A lot of times with our kids, we're not asking them their opinion. We're not asking them the questions. We are just talking. We're, we we think yeah. parenting is talking, teaching them, yeah. laying it out. Yeah. When sometimes it, a better parenting moment is, you know, looking at something, watching, like you were saying, a commercial, and then ask a question. Absolutely. And, and, and to tell our kids, one of the chapters I have in the book is better than lecturing. And I have found that it's a very good tool to tell, instead of to tell your kids what they're doing wrong and what they ought to do, to tell them your own experiences. So I have one son, he's now 25, he's the light of my life. And when he was little, his mom and I noted that he was really, he was really tense about grades. He was really worried about making A's. And, and he's, he's a very smart guy, and he was doing fine. And we started telling him, we said, when we were in school, both of us were, were the same way. We were really anxious about doing our best. And, and over time, we got some C's, we got some D's. I told him that I got some F's, uh-huh. and, and, and I survived. And I went to college, and I did well, and I've I got a great life. And, and that, that really helped him to relax. And in some ways, we felt like it helped him to relax a bit too much. But, <laughs> Darn it. But, Shouldn't have but, told him so many stories. Say, and yeah. then later on, I told him stories like, hey, when I was in college freshman year, I was with a bunch of the guys in the dorm, and I drank too much, and I smoked too much, and I was sitting on my, my friend's bed, and we were talking with a group of people, and I just vomited all over the place. Ooh. And, and then... And then this is when he was like 16, 17, because we knew that he was experimenting. Yeah. 
And, and then a short time later, he had gone to, he was visiting colleges, mostly with us, but he went to visit a college with a friend of his who we knew well, and that guy was a, a freshman already, and Eric was exploring schools. And he came back, and we asked him how it was, and he came back and said, you know, I just drank too much. I didn't get sick, but it was really bad, and I'm going to watch out and be more careful next time. You know, he knew that we're not perfect. He knew that I had done things like that. It gave him permission to talk about the the challenges and the foibles that he had faced. He, yeah. Kids need to know that we're human and that we can listen to the the problems they have, the troubles they get into, that sort of thing. And relate to them. And, and again, and then you talk about values and, and teach them your other values and your principles. You also, we only have about a minute left, but talk about how you, how you also teach spirituality in parenting. Well, I think spirituality is the core of health. I think it's the core of who we are. And I believe that we need to expose our kids to nature. We need to teach them about where we are in in communion with the natural world. I think that gardening and walking through through the woods is great. I also think we need to teach them values. And and I'll tell you a very quick story if I may. Yeah. When I was moving from my the last home before I moved here, there was this, there was these there were these two trees that were that had lost a couple of huge branches and i met with the arborist and he said look you can tie them together with a chain or the the safest thing to do would be to cut them down and i said look come down and there was great there was significant expense at that and the na- my neighbor's name is joe a little while later later came over and eric was with me and said, you know, that was really generous of you. That was a, a, quite a gift, and we won't forget it. And just my kid knowing that, that generosity, that kindness is essential in this life and that we're all connected is, is, is something that I think is really important for us to convey through example and also through what we say. Oh, so true. So true. Ken, we appreciate it. Uh, interesting, interesting insights, I think, for all of us as parents uh, getting the values in, uh, understanding that spirituality is a, a core of health, a uh, core principle of health as well. Ken Dolan Del Vecchio is the author of the book Simple Habits of Exceptional But Not Perfect Parents and and allowing our stories of imperfection um, to be taught and to be shared with our kids so that they they can see that, you know, mom and dad weren't these perfect specimens either. They didn't do everything right. They make mistakes, and yet uh, we all get through it. So we will continue uh, to to learn these parenting lessons as we go. That is one of the goals of the show, is to help us all pick up our parenting game a bit. We'll take a break, come back, do a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. So we don't need to be perfect parents. We can be exceptional parents. Um, One of the things we might want to be focusing on when it comes to our little kidlets is uh, how do you want them to be as adults? What what would be your goal? Is, is, Is it something as simple as just functional? 
Is is that all you're looking for from your kids? Is just a functional child, maybe one that can, you know, not get in trouble. One that I don't know can can be healthy. What is it you want? Because if we don't know what we kind of see in their future and want for their future, then how do we decide how to raise our kids every day? I wonder if sometimes we are not giving them enough um, enough leeway. We're not giving them enough power to just be their own parent. There was a, an interesting um, legisl- some interesting legislation passed in Utah this uh, this last legislative session, where now parents are allowed to let their children, uh, you know, free range kids, where they're allowed to now. They can walk places. They won't get in trouble as parents for letting their kids do things like walk to a park or or kind of do things that, you know, in other states you might be seen as neglectful, which, you know, some of that is just saying, hey, we got to let our kids grow up. And some of it is just pushing back at the status quo of a lot of uh, micromanaging of parents. But this idea that we could let our kids go a little bit more, maybe let them walk to the uh, the store by themselves, maybe babysit themselves or sit with them uh, themselves or their or their little brother or sister babysit a little earlier than we we dare to today. It might actually raise some healthier kids. I, I put together some ideas for how to make sure you're raising strong kids, not scaredy cats. Here's one of them. One of the points is simply quit talking about how dangerous the world is. We do live in a day and an age where your kids are healthier than they've ever been. They're, uh, they're generally overall uh, more likely to succeed than ever. They're more likely to probably be able to uh, not have infections and diseases and disorders. They're more likely to get medical care than ever before. They're more likely to be protected and safe and not abducted or even abused than any other time in the history of mankind. And yet all we talk about are terrorism reports and beheadings and all of these other problems. So if we're going to be honest with our kids, we probably also ought to be talking with them about how safe the world really is overall. Instead of making everything so dangerous, another thing you could do is empower your kids to do all the things that they can do, right? If they can carry their plate to the sink, let them carry it to the sink. If they can wash their plate, let them wash their plate. If they can start the the uh, the washer or the dryer, if they can fold clothes, let's let them do it. Even at a young age, let's let our kids do what they can. How about letting your children order their own food when you go to a restaurant? How about letting your children go ask the the um, the uh, the server to for more ketchup or whatever? Let your children do what they can so that we can allow them to to kind of overcome some of these fears. What about rewarding risk? What about valuing and appreciating failure? And like we were learning earlier from uh, Ken Dolan Del Vecchio, what if you could actually share more of your failures in life? I'm not a big believer that you ought to share your ugliest secrets. Uh, Ken was talking about how he was sharing with his kids about drinking um, and being sick because of drinking. I mean, I guess it depends on your value system, but I personally don't think there's some things that your kids need to know, but they should know about your failures. They should know about... Uh, I tell a story about when I was, what was I, a third grader and made fun of a girl on the way to school because she had a funny name. 
and uh, how bad I actually felt because of it. And I went to the principal's office because of it, and I remember feeling so, so bad. But teaching my kids about that, I've taught them about my grades weren't great either, but allowing failure to be a part of our lives and actually rewarding our children for their willingness to risk to do things, you know, risk to try something really hard. And it might be worth um, a little reward, however you reward your children. Another example, simply to practice more problem solving and conflict resolution. Help them uh, practice these skills. Help them figure out the best way to resolve their own issues instead of coming in and immediately disciplining them. What if we sat down and mediated their conversation if they were a little bit older and can handle it? Let's talk this stuff through. Let's also ask them a lot more questions, a lot of questions. These kids need to, and, and don't let them give you the answer, I don't know. I get that in my office all of the time. So what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know. What do you want to what do you want to do, you know, when you have your free time? I don't know. Well, of course you know. You're the only one that knows. No, I really don't know. Okay, then what if we just have you do dishes every day that you get home after school? Well, I don't want to do that. Okay, see? So you do know. You know what you don't want to do. And if you know what you don't want to do, then you you probably have some idea of what you do want to do. So Let's just expect more from our kids, but not necessarily more performance and more grades, but just more uh, ingenuity, more um, creativity. Let's expect more conversation, more interaction. And amazingly, when you do it, uh, they'll tend to deliver, which is so powerful. And then all of a sudden, you got these strong kids. Powerful stuff, folks. We're so blessed to have them, aren't we? These wonderful kids, and yet uh, it's not easy, yet it's the greatest value any of us will ever have. We will uh, continue the journey, folks. Again, doing what we can. Just a little advice. You don't have to take it. You can uh, just keep doing it another way. Whatever's working and getting the results you need, that's what we're hoping to give you. More tools, more ideas. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Dr. Brian Willoughby is an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University, and he's one of our contributors we have on regularly. And we like to revisit some of his interviews to just keep giving you more and more ideas for how to handle life and deal with things. Last time he was on, or a while ago, we talked about marriage arguments and the effects that they have on children. And uh, we're going to continue that discussion now, and we're going to ask, uh, in, in this this section, we're going to be talking about beneficial ways in which we can actually disagree. Yeah, which isn't the case at all. As I always tell my students, there's there's a difference between conflict and conflict resolution. Yeah. And every couple has conflict. It's about how you resolve the conflict that matters. That's huge. Um, I, I actually think one of the biggest things here, it seems like a really small thing, but I think it's huge. It's humor. Yeah. It's it's not letting, because one of the things that happens when we have conflict and disagreements as, as a spouse is we get a lot of emotion, a lot yeah. of negative emotion, and we let it build. Uh-huh. And, and that's when all the, the negative stuff tends to happen. And so if we can bring humor in, now when I say humor, I don't mean like cynical, sarcastic comments towards (laughs) your spouse, but just laughing about things Mm -hmm. and and, and keeping things light, that's a huge thing, especially if kids are around and they're hearing us have a disagreement. If we kind of joke with each other, um, that's huge. We do that. Like, so do you hate me? 
I'll right. go say I'll go ask my wife. So do you hate me now? And she's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's a joke and it breaks the ice. Right. And then you can kind of address, no, I'm just mad because you. Yeah. And it sends a really powerful message to kids that we just disagreed and we had a little conflict, a yeah. little argument, but it's not a big deal at all. No one's We're still die having fun. here. Yeah. Because kids might in- inherently go to divorce. If their right. friends' parents are divorcing, they might be thinking, oh, man, yeah. my parents are going to divorce. And the other powerful message it sends is that we disagreed, but I still like you. Because yeah. if we have humor, there's this uh, assumption that we still are playful and like that's each true. other. That's a pretty powerful message. No, that's huge. Yeah. And that could be humor. That could be even affection still turning toward, towards each other, the turns mm-hmm. and the bids towards each other. Right, yeah. Um, I think another really powerful thing in terms of modeling things for kids is as parents, a lot of times we're pretty good at coming up with systems for parenting, you know, yeah. your chore charts. Right. And we sit down as a family, we have a family meeting and say, okay, here's, we we want to work on bedtime or we want to work on cleaning your room. And, and we try to model, okay, here's ki- here kids, here's how you do that. Yeah. We don't do that as much for marriage, even though a lot of us in our marriage sometimes right. will have little things. We'll sit down and say, we need to work on our relationship. Let's try this. Yeah. But our kids never know that it's happening. And it's okay to let them in on some of those things. Right. Okay, you don't have to let them in on, you know, hey, mom and I are having some disagreements about sexual frequency. Right. Well, I just want to <laughs> let you guys know. I didn't want to bring it up. Yeah. It's your mother. Um, yeah. But, you know, let them, I was actually thinking about this this morning. My wife and I. One of the things that that we came up with a while ago is, you know what, let's let's try to come up with one nice, unexpected thing that we do for each other every day. Cool. Um, and we started doing that. And I was just thinking about because we've I was mentioning to you before I've been on vacation. Yeah. It's like I should start doing that again today. Um, but that's a great thing to do. My kids know right. that my wife and I are doing that. That I should let them know that. And yeah. it's not necessarily about a disagreement, but it helps them know that we're working on our relationship. Constantly. Or even even just going on a walk, just. Mom and I are going to go – we've got to go talk something out on a walk. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Stephen Covey used to get on a little um, scooter, trail bike kind of thing. And he and his wife, his wife would get on back and they would go talk. Mm-hmm. So anytime they needed a talk, yeah, they're, they're like, we're going on the trail bike. And everyone in the family kind of knew, yeah. okay. Yeah. And again, that's great with Work topics that maybe you don't feel yeah. comfortable talking about in front of your kids. Again, just letting them yeah. know that, that – you know, hey, we're going to go discuss this, or we had a discussion, and cool. or we need to go on a walk. You know, whatever right. it is for you, it doesn't matter how you do it, but letting the kids know that there is a disagreement. Stuff's happening. We're you talking. talked about it, and everything's fine. Now. Cool. And when you can, just do it in front of them. Yeah, exactly. And another thing I'll add to doing it in front of them, another huge thing here is validation. Mm-hmm. Validating your partner, which basically means telling them that you value their opinion that you care about what they think and how they're thinking and how they feel, letting your kids see that, that even though you disagree about whatever it is, that you still value what That's they're huge. saying. That's a huge thing. Just because you can so inval- quickly invalidate by being negative or talking over them and right. that after years of that, they may yeah. feel like there is no value. Right. And that in particular teaches kids another really important thing that even transcends relationships, I think. It lets them show that you can still care about someone that you disagree with. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, I think, so many people in this world that feel like there's only two options. We either disagree and hate yeah. each other. Yeah. Or we completely agree and we love each other. That's right. And it's, it's the world's not like that. Uh-uh. The, one of the top marriage interaction scholars out there, John Gottman, has come up with this idea of unresolvable conflict. He said every couple has at least a few topics that, that they will never agree That's on. That's right, ever. Different values, different beliefs, whatever it is, they'll never agree on. 
And and that's okay, he yeah. says, as long as we are willing to still validate and support and love each other. And I think it's powerful for kids to see that. So you know what? I completely disagree with you. Yeah. I don't think I'm ever going to agree with you, but I value your your opinion and I value yeah. you as a person and we can disagree and that's okay. I've seen people that, that have that, the, the thing they're just going to disagree on, but they have to kind of operationalize it and mm-hmm. decide. And they just say, okay, grab a quarter and they'll just flip a coin. Today we're doing it. Right. Tomorrow yeah. we're not. We're going to let – because we can't solve it any other way. But yeah. part of it is, I guess, teaching your kids this, huh? having mm-hmm. these conversations and the tension in front of them and then showing them resolution and then showing them that you're back together. Right. That you've yeah. survived and nobody died. Yeah. That the, that tension doesn't carry over. It's huge. That it's not an unresolved, long-term negative thing in yeah. this relationship or in this family that we just move on. What would you say as we wrap it up, Bri? What's the, what would be the number one thing when it comes to conflict um, that, that we as parents might want to remember or that the kids need to learn? From us. Right. I'm going to go back to the, the, and again, this seems so counterintuitive. The number one thing is kids need to learn that conflict's okay. It's good. That we don't hide it. That's that's probably the biggest problem I see couples do is they try to hide their conflict. They hide their disagreements. And then, like I said, kids either grow up on one side, seeing their parents have tension. yeah, Yeah. And that has that negative role model that we talked about. Or they grow up with this idea that marriages don't have conflict. At least the good marriages don't have conflict. And that's Uh. problematic. That's Dr. Brian Willoughby right here uh, from Brigham Young University. He's an associate professor in the School of Family Life, and you can get more information on his website, drbrianwilloughby.com. Now, as it's coming up upon us uh, Easter weekend, a lot of candy is going to be purchased, a lot of chocolate, a lot of chocolate bunnies. Yes, yes. And whatever you do, don't try to steal the chocolate bunnies. There are many people that would love to have a chocolate bunny but you need to pay for it. Pay and if for you your get bunny. if you get caught trying to steal a chocolate bunny like this woman in uh, Myrtle Beach, Florida, don't crumple it up, throw it back in the store and then say, "Are we good?" Ugh. when you're confronted. Bunnies do not deserve to be crumpled. People. People. Bunnies are people too. That's what I've been saying for years. Choc- chocolate bunnies, they're not actually people, but they're edible for people. So as we wrap up this uh, second hour of the Matt Townsend Show, remember, bunnies are gifts from heaven, covered in chocolate, and then consumed by the loving children. They don't need to be harmed by... You don't start biting their ears off and then their little bunny legs. Actually, I think you start with the ears. But you don't crumple them up and throw them on the floor. No, yeah. Respect your chocolate. You you lovingly chomp them before you swallow them. Ear by ear. Mm -hmm. Then take off their tail, then their legs, and then work your way to their head. That doesn't sound right. Treat your chocolate with respect. A a, a little message brought to you by the Matt Townsend Show. Lovers of chocolate bunnies everywhere. We'll continue the journey. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know those millennials. They're just so lazy. As I look at Ben yawning through the middle of my show. They're not lazy, folks. 
They were misunderstood. Misunderstood, totally. And they were basically like monsters created to fell. That's what I was thinking, too. So let me give you some other coaching tools. And this isn't just for millennials. This would be for some, some ideas for how you can coach other people when they bring you their problem. Right? Because it's easy. You know, you may have a friend that constantly comes and brings you all of their issues. And you need to fix this for me. Um, but if you're going to coach people, and this would work great with millennials, you know, in coaching them on their own uh, issues as well. But um, I'm going to give you just five basic keys, okay, as we go through this coaching corner. Uh, the first key is to know that the answers, any answer, or I call them a hook, a hook might be something that keeps somebody stuck. All of their answers, all of their hooks are in them, not you. So when somebody comes to ask me a, um, you know, a question, but it's involving them or their life or their uh, experience in the world, when it's about them, the answers are in them, not me. And you got to realize that as a coach. And there's a lot of value to knowing that because if I understand the problems are in them, the issues are in them, then honestly, then I can uh, kind of make it more about them. I also don't have to be offended if they use or take my advice or not. Um, I also can know that if I give a solution that doesn't work, it's because I probably didn't unhook the right issue in them. So I want you to be thinking about somebody that comes up to you, asks you a lot of questions, wants your advice, maybe somebody that doesn't seem to take it a lot, uh, or or the people that maybe are around you wanting insight but don't necessarily ask for it. Know that their issues, their answers are in them. And I'm convinced that uh, that those issues are in them, and I I want them I want them to be responsible for the fact that this is your world. A lot of times I'll ask somebody a question, and they're like, "I don't know, I don't know the answer to that." Well, you must. I don't know is your fast answer that you're just telling me as a coach, but you're the only person that knows why you do what you do, right? I mean, I can guess why you do it, I can surmise, but. You're the one with all of the information. You're the one with all the data. So make sure when you coach somebody that the answers are inside of them, even if it's just coaching them to kick a ball in a goal. And if, if they have the inability to do it, then that hook is stopping them, but that hook is inside of them. And the job of a really good coach is to get inside that person and help that person find out what their answers are. Um, one reason that that's important, too, is because in motivation theory, it would say that unless this person uh, – unless the answers are coming from this person, they're less likely to be motivated to actually do anything about it anyway. So turn it back on them and uh, let me show you how we do that. One way to do it is to use questions, right, to turn on some lights. So like, let's say a mother came in and, you know, I don't – my son, we, we were going to move him to a new school. I'm pretty sure it's – I mean it's an important thing. I'm not sure he's going to like it, but I, I want to move him to this new school. I think it's better for him. And um, they might just right out of the chute say, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know your son. I don't know everything about what's going on here. So be careful to not just jump on that answer. Well, yeah, I would totally move him. I was moved to a new school and I was his same age and I turned out great. Um, instead, use some questions, 
right? So, you know, just use some questions. Like, you know what? I don't I don't know what to do about moving your son yet, but you know, it sounds like you're really considering it. Um but before I answer this, can I ask you a few questions? Like, so what are your goals for your son and his situation? And try to help him by just asking the question, what are your goals? It allows them to have to go evaluate their goals. Or, uh, you know, what, what do you perceive the problems might be with moving him to this area, to this new school? What does your heart tell you about this decision? What does your mind tell you? You know, and which of those two do you trust more? Which answer do you trust more? Another question you could just simply ask is, why are you asking someone else's advice on this? Why are you not just making the decision yourself? But push on them, right? Because, and push with questions. And let these questions not be to trap them, not be to beat them up, not even just so you know how to answer this person. Ask the questions so that this person has to explore what they are doing, right? If the, if the issue is in them, then ask the questions that help them explore it. The more information we gather here, it's also going to do two things. It's going to give me more data, but it's probably going to lower their emotion about this decision. Anytime somebody brings me a big you know, bundle of emotion, I usually like to get them talking and sharing their feelings about the emotion. So... First step, understand their answers and hooks are in them, in them, not me. Second is use questions to turn the lights on. My goal is just to get information. Once I can figure out what their goals are with their son and what's the history of the situation and what are they feeling right now about it and why are you asking me, why aren't you asking someone else and what does your gut tell you, a lot of those might – they might just answer it themselves, right? Another thing I like to do is as they're talking is I reflect back what I hear them saying. I'll reflect back. So it sounds like you really like to have your child try another school, but you're afraid he'll lose friends if he goes to the new school. Is that what you're saying? And I just hold it up back to what they were to them so that they have to look at what they're saying. And the way I do that is I just basically paraphrase what they just told me. And then I say, so is that what you're saying? And then they have to agree or disagree. Well, yeah, that's – well, and it's it's not just like that. I also – I don't want to feel like I'm too demanding that I'm pushing my son this way. Now, the more they talk, I love it because the more information it gives me about them, but it also allows me to maybe look a little bit deeper at what their motives are, what's driving them, what their concerns are. If this mother, for example, keeps saying, I just don't want to – Make the decision for him. I just I want I I don't want to make a mistake, and I feel like I might be pushing him too hard. But then I'd go talk more about that. Man, it sounds like you feel like you're applying a lot of pressure about this decision. Tell me more about that, and then let them explore that issue. Does that make sense? So as they're sharing their issues, the issues usually never the real issue we're discussing. This isn't about school. This is about this mother's concerned about her son. She's concerned, and she wants to make a change for her son. And she's also concerned that the change will create other problems, like he will lose his friends, or she's just being too demanding. So if you hold it up, don't agree with it, don't disagree with it, don't argue it. I don't even give other advice. I just say, I just kind of let them kind of sift through what they're thinking about. 
And by not taking a position, then they don't have to like, you know, retract into their position and then we don't have to debate about it. Keep it very open so we can keep this issue moving until we find out what's going on. Then another rule I like to use is I point out their inconsistencies. So it sounds like you're worried about your son and, you know, and his grades, and yet you also don't want to feel like you're making the decision for your son. Is that what you're, is that what you're feeling? This, that's a little bit of an inconsistency, right? You want him to move on and you're concerned it's not a great idea. Point out the inconsistencies. What I find many times, it's the inconsistencies in our thinking that come out in a conversation. And if we can hold it up, not call them on it. Oh, it sounds like this is what's really going on. You don't need to be the pop psychologist. Just I'm noticing that you you really feel like you're pushing your kid too hard. And you also really feel strongly that he needs to move on. Talk to me about that. And then if I can get them to be honest a little bit more about the inconsistency, that's where I see a lot of truth come out when I'm coaching couples, when I'm working with people. Um, it's it's pretty interesting stuff. And so point out those inconsistencies. And then last and certainly not least, be cautious about giving advice, right? Be cautious about giving advice. And one reason I say that is because um, people take your advice, right? So if you give advice, people are going to take it. That's one of the weirdest things I learned being a, kind of a radio TV personality is people actually take your advice. Be super careful offering it. The other reason I want you to be super careful offering advice is because um, they also need people to blame. So if they don't like your advice or if your advice backfires, you're the one that gave it. So they will hold you accountable to it, right? Five basic, easy coaching steps. Know your answers and hooks are in the people you're talking to, not you. Use questions to turn on some lights. Reflect back what you hear them saying. Point out their inconsistencies, cautiously, of course. And be careful giving advice, folks. Be careful. I've seen people advise a divorce because their friend gave him that advice. Be careful, the advice you give anybody, um, especially if you haven't done the other steps before it. Stick with us, folks, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. I think people... The current political climate has been difficult for Americans of all political stripes. The focus has been on adults, yet teens and college-aged Americans are exposed to the same headlines. Are the polarized headlines and political events causing unhealthy levels of stress for our youth? Well, to look into this further, Dr. Melissa DeYonker has worked with others at the University of Michigan to conduct research and we have her on the show here today. Melissa, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. And thank you so much for having me. So I don't know if you've been tuned into our program yet this morning, but we've been talking about this quite a bit because usually we will start off the show talking about all all that's going on in the world of politics. 
And, you know, we're, we're just constantly surrounded by politics and the news. It's, it's a, a very stressful time for a lot of people. Why do you think it does cause so much stress, though? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, you know, one thing that we know about stress is that the more, you know, the more times you're exposed to something, um, you start to feel the effects more. So chronic or uncontrollable stress um, is associated with all sorts of mental and physical health problems down the road. Um, so, you know, it's the repeated exposure um, that, that may be playing a big role in that. Do you think it has anything to do with the media coverage of politics? One one point that we talked about earlier in the program is that a lot of these people are very expert in amping up the dramatics of the political news. Do you think that plays into it? Hmm. I would say, you know, we didn't ask that specifically in the study, so I can't say for sure. Um, but it seems likely, right? So a lot of the adolescents and young adults to reported that they were just sick of having this conversation and having it be so divided. Um, So they're talking to their parents, they're talking to their friends, they're seeing stories on social media media and on the news that really makes them feel like this is a battle, right? Like we are um, arguing all the time, sensationalized. And so I think it is likely that that plays into it. So tell us more about the study that that you surveyed. You surveyed uh, 80 youth, and what were some of the parameters of the study? Sure. So I'm part of a team of adolescent health researchers, and we actually talk to youth every week via text messaging. So we know that uh, youth are always on their phones, right? And text messaging is is a way to access um, or a way to communicate with them. So we actually send out weekly surveys via text message about a ton of different health and social issues. Um, So we ask them about their relationships with their doctors. We ask them about how how much they sleep at night. Um, And one of the the things that we were noticing was that in the months before the election, there were a ton, there was a ton of media coverage about how stressed out adults were. Um, So we wanted to hear from youth to see if they were experiencing the same thing. So three three time points, we um, talked to the adolescents about stress. It was before the, excuse me, one week before the election, two weeks after, and then four months after. Um, and we had about eight and um, tell us in an open-ended way, just sort of tell us the story of what they were experiencing related to politics. Interesting. So, uh, you know, one thing I noticed, you, you mentioned this study, and I, I think of I think of my relationship with my children and my stress level and how that translates to their stress level. I notice mm-hmm. that when 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 we don't exactly have everything put together or if they can tell that we're upset or we're stressed out over something, it causes some anxiety in them. Do you think that any of this stress that these uh, teenagers and college-age students are experiencing is inherited from their parents? Are they being stressed out because their parents are stressed out? Hmm. Well, I don't know for sure with the, you know, with the youth that we talked to, but I would imagine that the, that the um, adolescents are they're living in the same space as their parents, right? Um, so it makes sense that that environment um, would be similar and would also have an impact on the young people. I think one thing that, that we forget, though, or not a lot of attention is given to is that, you know, politics affect 
youth just as much as, as a politics affect adults, right? So that the policies that are being made, um, the conversations that are, um, that are happening in the country also affect the, um, you know, the, the way that adolescents are able to live their lives. So they're paying attention. Um, they're thinking about how this might impact them. Um, and that's contributing to the amount of distress that they're feeling. So, Melissa, what were what were some of the findings that you had? What were some of the, the biggest concerns that you came across in these studies from the youth? Well, I would say, first, um, that the stress hasn't gone away. So youth were reporting stress before the election. They were reporting it during and then after. Um, so symptoms like not sleeping, difficulty concentrating, and then the more emotional, just stressed out, anxious feelings didn't go away after the election. Yeah. Um, so it's something that's continuing to affect young people. And like I, like I was saying earlier, we know that chronic stress can have really negative implications for health and well-being. Um, so we really want uh, practitioners, teachers, parents to pay attention to what's going on in um, the lives of young people to make sure that we're just we're not ignoring this as a problem, um, but helping youth to develop coping strategies or, um, you know, think about how they can they can deal with the, the stress of politics in a positive way. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a correlation between the level of stress that they experience and their level of involvement in social media? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. So we didn't ask that specifically, um, but there is some evidence in, in, in what the adolescents were saying that a lot of their, their news and their frustration came from the exposure on social media. So because they are so plugged in, they are constantly receiving information from their friends, from their family and the world. And, um, you know, they have to process that, right? So if they are spending a lot of time on social media, it makes sense to me um, that that would play into the amount of stress that they're feeling. We do know that that's true with adults. So there was a study from the American Psychological Association that showed that adults who used social media more often reported more um, more stress before the election. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. I wonder, yeah, I wonder uh, what would happen to our stress level if we just kind of backed up a bit and didn't participate as much in social media. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, unplugged a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. If you're just joining <laughs> us, we're speaking with Melissa DeYonker, uh, who is from the URA, conducted a study with others at the University of Michigan um, to gauge stress in teens and college-age students. And I'm curious to know what uh, what positive findings you had. Did you have uh, any, any responses from the youth that indicated that maybe they weren't as stressed as some of the others, or maybe they, they felt safe, they felt secure? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that's a very good point. So we did um, we did talk to youth who felt, you know, that they they never engaged in politics, and so politics doesn't affect them at all. Um, we had youth who were saying, you know, I don't really worry about it, or I turn off the news, I don't pay attention to what's going on. So we did have a, a small portion of young people who were saying that. Um, we also not in this study necessarily, but um, we've done a follow-up where we actually have talked to 1,500 youth now. Um, same age group, same questions related to politics, and it's been in, in the time since 
the 2016 election. Um, we're still analyzing it, but I can tell you that some of the some of the youth reported that you know they feel like things are going great, so they feel happy, they feel secure, they feel like you know their financial situation is improving in the last few months. So there is a small subset of of young people who um, you know have these have these different reactions to the election. Yeah. Adding on to that, though, um, you know, we also found that supporters of either candidate, so the, the stress, the level of stress that young people were reporting was not specific to who they who they wanted to win the election. Mm. Um, so we had youth who noted that they were Hillary supporters or youth who noted that they were going to vote for Trump and others who said, you know, I don't like either candidate. And all three types of individuals were saying the same sorts of things, that they can't sleep, they're nervous, they're anxious, um, they're having difficulty concentrating in school. So that's a real problem. Oh, absolutely. And I'm curious because uh, obviously there was an age range in this study. I'm curious to Mm -hmm. know what was the youngest group of, of youth that you got responses from? And also... In your opinion, what what's kind of the age at which these uh, these youth start to form some of these political opinions? You know, that's a very good question that I don't have the answer to in terms of. Um, <laughs> well, let, let's get back to the first opinion. part of that question. The how how young were the the youngest uh, youth that you interviewed? Fourteen. Fourteen. Okay. Yep. Wow. It'd be interesting yeah. to see to to kind of. Put uh, match up their uh, political stances and their their level of stress with what their parents' opinions are mm. and their level of stress. Um, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, well let's let's focus on on what we can do. Uh, so how how can we help these these youth not feel so stressed? How can we help them so that they can better understand? the events that are going on in the news so that they don't have to be so stressed, they don't have to feel so worried? Mm-hmm. Well, there have been, you know, there have been recommendations from, for example, the American Psychological Association that say taking time away from news is really important, right? So turn off the television or the social media and disengage. You want to read and be involved enough to know what's going on, but not necessarily more than that, um, especially if you're feeling like when you're reading through your social media pages and your timelines, that it becomes overwhelming, right? So it's acknowledging that feeling stress or feeling anxious about things that are happening in the world is a normal thing, and then doing what you need to do to feel better in that situation. Based on research, we know that um, youth who who volunteer, who get more involved in an issue that is important to them, um, who are engaged in their community, actually report um, better mental health. They have better mental health outcomes. Um, so getting involved in politics even may be useful. So we don't know that from this study, um, but that's definitely something I'd be interested in looking at in the future. I just love that idea. That's another thing that we talked about earlier in the program is trying to get involved at a at a local level, whether it's, you know, doing something as small as 
as writing to your local representatives or going to a city council meeting. I'm even thinking right. of, of doing something as small as hosting a, a block party so that I'm just engaging the community a little more. So that's interesting. So the more involved that they become in these events that are stressing them out, it seems like the less stress they will be. That's really interesting. Right. So so one of the things about stress is that, um, or mental health in general with young people, is that if you know that you can affect a difference locally, you can make a small difference, you can contribute, or, for example, that your vote matters, these are all positive things that um, affect your mental health, right? So knowing that you can create a change whether that's just through volunteering or, or having your block party or doing something positive, um, that's going to have mental health benefits. So, yeah, I think, I think we, you know, we might see that with what's been going on with all the, all the protests related to gun violence, right? So instead of backing away, young people have been walking out of school and standing up for something that they think is important. Yeah. I think that, you know, dem- that demonstrates most likely, that they have control over the situation um, and have a voice in what's happening to them. Melissa, it's so interesting. The solution seems so simple, and yet it it doesn't seem like too many people are interested in the solution. Let me let me give you an example. I just remember growing up, and this is this is the case for so many children, where you know you had an you had an ouchie or you had something that wasn't feeling very well. So you would say, Dad. It hurts when I when I touch this part of my head. And what did your dad say? He would just say, "Well, don't do it." Right? So <laughs> it seems like if social if uh, social media is causing us so much so much stress, we should just back away, right? Just don't do it, right? And so I think some right. of these ideas that you're giving us are just fantastic. And I'm curious to know, just in closing here, Melissa, what what else do you see going forward in your research and what do you hope to see to help uh, de-stress our youth in America? Hmm. A simple question, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think our goal um, and our larger goal with the study that I'm a part, part of is really to connect youth experiences and youth perspectives to policy. Um, so we feed this information to policymakers with the idea that hopefully they will care about youth uh, perspectives on issues and use that to inform um, the policies that they support. Um, so part of part of our goal is to um, to help make change on a on a local, state, and federal level um, based on what young people think and feel. And I think again, going back to what's happening across schools in this country, right? Um, you know, that's really important, and and youth are expressing you know, a need to be a part of the conversation. It affects them, um, you know, policies affect them, and they want to be a part of that conversation. Well, Melissa, we really appreciate your time here on the Matt Townsend Show and your perspective on this issue. Um, her name is Dr. Melissa DeYonker, and she is a research fellow with the Michigan Mixed Methods Research and Scholarship Program. And uh, she's been talking to us today about how politics are stressing out America's youth, but she gave us some fantastic ideas. I think the youth are starting to uh, pick up on some of these ideas. She mentioned the students in, in Florida and really throughout the country that are making their voices heard. And I guess another way that they can 
engage more is to not engage as much in social media. Anyway, we will continue the discussion here on the Matt Townsend Show when we return. I mentioned uh, going to a baseball game with my wonderful daughter last night. Well, you mentioned eating food at a baseball game. That's true. I don't know how closely we we paid. uh, I don't know how closely we watched the game. I think mostly I was either concentrating on food or concentrating on trying to keep warm because we found out very quickly that we were not prepared for the uh, very cold weather that we experienced. But anyway. As I mentioned earlier, we had a soft pretzel. We had a hot dog. My daughter had a churro. We shared some Starburst. We shared a hot chocolate. And this was all within like a four and a half inning period of time. So I I, wow. I felt like I wasn't doing us any favors on our waistline, which is interesting because Terry South has some statistics for us. And I'm hoping that uh, I'm not contributing to what you're about to share with us. Maybe. Uh-oh. So, uh, Wallet Hub, mm-hmm. we've had one of their polls earlier this week, but they do random, like, polling, and they come out with some data. They just look at statistics and put out some stuff, and sure. hopefully you want to look into it further, I guess. But they compared 100 of the most populated U.S. metro areas across 18 key indicators of weight-related problems. Whoa. Right? So they're basically trying to find out, as they have this title, the fattest cities in America. <laughs> okay. <laughs> They're not trying to, you know, paint this with a uh a po- Sure. It's like a it's not necessarily a positive or negative. They're just saying, "Hey, this is what it is. This is the fattest right. cities." So it, it starts out by saying Americans are the fattest people in the world. Not just stereotypically, but statistically too. In fact, in 2017, almost 40% of the US population age 15 and older is obese. And I think, you know, this this is something that we've heard for a long time, right? right? This isn't this is News, but then right. it says uh, the extra pounds have inflated the cost of obesity-related medical treatment to nearly three or three hundred sixteen billion a year, and annual productivity loss due to work absenteeism to more than eight point six billion a year. So, you know, there's a lot of money being yeah. spent and lost yeah. as we we deal with the the way we are as a people. I guess forty percent of the country obese. Um, so they looked at one hundred of the most populated U.S. metro areas. Had some statistics, and this is what they came up with. So with this list, you can look at it 1 through 100, right? The mm-hmm. number one on this list is the fattest city in America. Okay. The 100 would be seen as one of the more fittest cities in America. Okay. So you got a positive, negative approach. So I'll, yeah. g- I'll give you the top five, which is the fattest, and the bottom five, which is the not-so-fat. Yeah, to okay. be clear, this isn't the 100th isn't even the 100th most fat. No. It, they only took 100 cities, yeah. and so the 100th would be the most fit of the 100 they took. <laughs> or not-so-fat. The not-so-fat. Depending on which side you want to look at. You guys are being negative. <laughs> so what do you, where, we'll just play the guess guessing game. Where do you think the fattest city, according to this, in America is? I'm guessing either somewhere in Texas or somewhere, uh, yeah. Texas isn't even in the top. Oh, no, Texas is right there. I'll tell you. We'll we'll, we'll get this. (laughs) So the fattest city in America, Little Rock, Arkansas. 
Oh, really? It says Little Rock, North Little Rock, and Conway, which is well, suburbs probably, but Arkansas. They rank ninth, ninth in oh, what obesity and overweight, uh, one in health consequences, and one in food and fitness rank. Wow. Wow. Okay. Two is Shreveport, Louisiana. Yeah. Three, uh, McAllen, Texas, which is down in the southern sort of boot, I guess you could call it, because it's Texas. Did you ever live close to there? My sister did. Okay. My sister spent some time down there. Uh, Memphis, Tennessee is four. Mobile, Alabama is five. Knoxville, Tennessee. Jackson, Mississippi. uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Baton Rouge, Lexington. Those are your top ten. So places where there are a lot of fried foods... Yeah, I was like, every one of these is like barbecue, 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 barbecue. Oh, yeah. but it's so good. Of course it's good. Oh. No one, no one's criticizing the goodness of the barbecue. Doesn't this, okay, isn't another way to look at this list? At, these are the top five cities that have the best taste in food. Yeah, this is, these, are, these are my vacation lists right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm developing. Yeah. That sounds pretty good to me. Uh, yeah. Whatever your spin is, yeah. <laughs> um, and so the bottom five, or top five, depending on your okay. way you want to do this. Uh, so we'll go. Uh, how how would this work? I guess the one hundred would be the least fattest, or we're just last place. Like I'll start at ninety five. Uh, Boston, the Boston mm-hmm. area, uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Yeah, not uh, not to be confused with Colorado Springs, Connecticut. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Seattle, Washington. Yep. Salt Lake City, Utah is ninety eight. Ninety nine is Honolulu, Hawaii. Yeah. And 100 is the Portland Vancouver area. Portland Washington. Man, we're Portland, always Oregon. we're always like last in everything. We just really failed in this department. Can't even win at being fat. I I think that's the way we need to look at it. We're just we we just can't win. I think no, I just learned just the clam win. chowder is actually slimming then. Because really? Boston was in Boston's the area. bottom. That's a good point. Now, wait a minute. It's good so it was, for you. It was Boston. What was the one after Boston again? Boston, Colorado Springs, Colorado Springs Seattle, Seattle, Salt Lake, Honolulu, and Portland, Oregon. See, now, I thought they loved Spam in Hawaii. Yeah. I would think Spam was not. It's good for you. But the sodium. The stats don't lie, Jeffrey. Wow. We need to get Palakiko in here. He could tell us. If this is accurate, it has to do with like healthy lifestyles and medical records, also. So I mean, maybe it's because they're always at the beach, so they need to well, look slim. Apparently, the people that live in Hawaii actually have to work occasionally. It's no. not like they're on like just permanent vacation. No, 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 no. They're always on the beach. Lots of stereotypes going on here. <laughs> Everybody's always dancing around and in lays really? and, and it's hula one, skirts. It's one luau after another. Right. All right. It's just like everybody here in Utah has 10 we're, children. And we're constantly skiing. <laughs> yeah, that healthy lifestyle of Colorado Springs and Salt Lake probably has to do with a little bit of skiing and snowboarding. Yeah. Which means you just pile on the layers of clothing so no one can tell if you're fat or not. There you go. This gets back to all the stereotypes and speculation that we were talking about earlier that are so much fun to talk about. Right. Like that we, people tune in for. We gave our top five and then we instantly <laughs> went barbecue because, you know, that's all they eat down there is barbecue. Because think, I'm hungry. Well, yeah. I think one way we make Little Rock, Arkansas feel better is we just point out that we here in Utah failed miserably. They beat us. At what? They beat us handily at this list. Well, they're number one. They're number one. Not necessarily the list you want to be number one on. But... Little Rock, you're number one. So there you go. I think that's the big takeaway. There's your fattest cities in America. <laughs> all righty. Well, I think all that did was make me more hungry. 
Perfect timing, because it's the weekend. Anyway, when we return, we're going to continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. You know, life as a police officer seems like it's hard enough without all of the, you know, stereotypical, getting back to stereotypes, hazing that, you know, we see in movies with the rookie cop getting teased and hazed. Well, I feel really bad for this rookie cop. Uh, Connecticut police say a man stole a rookie officer's car and used his credit cards to buy food at a Taco Bell and shop at Walmart. 21-year-old Derek Johnson was charged Tuesday with multiple offenses, including burglary, second-degree larceny, and identity theft. Police say Johnson stole the car from a parking garage on January 23rd, the night of the officer's police academy graduation. Oh, no, that's the worst. Happy graduation. Investigators say Johnson bought items from Walmart and Taco Bell with the stolen credit cards before leaving the car in a private lot. Police later recovered the car. Investigators say they identified Johnson using surveillance footage. Now, I can imagine if there is any hazing that goes on at a police department, I can imagine it would only be that much worse if the day that you're going to be a police officer, you you have your car stolen. Oops. Oh. I feel so bad for this officer. Oh, my goodness. Do you think the punishments should be more severe if it's a crime that's committed against a police officer, a theft against a police officer? No, the law is the law, Jeff. So we shouldn't discriminate. That's right. No, I think it's I think it's very interesting that he went to Taco Bell and Walmart. So it's not like I mean, if I was were I a criminal, Jeffrey, and not that we encourage that kind of thing. I think that I have places that I would go with someone else's credit card beyond the places that I normally go with mm. my credit card. So it seems like anywhere outside of Utah or some uh, even like a rural community, you would notice if there's a police officer not in uniform in their car. Oh, yeah. Right? I'm pretty sure. Here in Utah, you know, it's pretty standard to see somebody in a police car that's not in uniform. But, uh, yeah, I think that would raise some red flags with other people. Anyway, good luck to this officer. I hope that uh, the other police officers treat him right and uh, don't haze him. Give him a break. And maybe throw him a graduation party because it sounds like his graduation was not all that great. <laughs> 